This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. We're calling this series The Movement as we look at um, God's move, the Holy Spirit's move through the church as it not only developed the church and birthed the church, but then launched the church into mission. And we said in the very first week we started this study that we are part of a rich history, a few thousand years of people, uh, a persecuted people to begin with and through the ages, but a people who said we are built around this conviction that we believe that Jesus Christ died and that he didn't stay in the grave, but that after three days he walked out. Not only that, but that he's still alive today. It's that conviction, it's that announcement, that declaration that has held the church together and launched the church forward for 2,000 plus years. It's the legacy that you and I are a part of, not just being part of a church, but being part of a movement. As we study uh, God's word this morning, we're entering into a section of scripture that's uh, between two significant events. Uh, As I looked through different churches that have taught through the book of Acts, many skip this portion of the book. Um, In some ways, it's a passage of scripture that talks about waiting. Well, instead of of skipping out on waiting, I wanted to see as we looked at this passage, God, is there anything that you would have us learn from your word about how to be people who wait well? Because here's what I've noticed about me. Here's what I've noticed about me. If, if my life is sort of uh, this timeline here, um, I, I have what I would consider to be uh, significant events in my life. And, and as I look back on my uh, X amount of years that I've been alive, 33 years I've been alive, uh, I can pinpoint a, a number of significant events. When, when I was a backpacking guide, we used to do something. We, we'd have everybody on the trail share their life story around a campfire at night. Um, it was uh, a powerful time. Sometimes we called that time um, milestones and memories. Uh, the, the significant things, those uh, high water marks in all of our lives that, that we inevitably have. Some of them are really good and some of them are really painful, but they're the times that define us in many ways. Well, I started to think, what does God do in this in-between time? In this time that we might characterize sort of that waiting time, in between significant events in our life, how does God work? How does he move? Does he? Or does he just work at these sort of mountaintop experiences? Well, I've noticed that that much of my life is spent in this in-between, that um, my wife and I got pregnant, can't tell you the exact date, but sometime in June, uh, well, no, we found out we were pregnant in June, and we had a baby in January. Um, I can assure you, God had some work to do in between the time we found out and the time she gave birth. Any dads, amen? Yeah, wrapping your mind around, I'm going to have to care for another little life, okay, okay. We had a time where we had to wait between when our son Ethan was walking or when he was crawling and when he was walking. Praise be to God for that time. 
um, as a first-time dad, I prayed, God, please let my son start walking soon. Let him start walking now. And now, as a third-time father, I pray, Lord, hold it off as long as possible, please. Um, we had this time in between where our son was able to, uh, where he was born and not able to talk, and we prayed in this in-between time, Lord, let him start speaking. And now I pray, Lord, please let him be quiet just for a little bit. You may be able to relate. One of the things I've been challenged with as a parent is that there's always going to be seasons of waiting. There's always going to be another milestone that's on the horizon. And my tendency, not just as a follower of Jesus, but my sort of innate tendency in life is to continue to look towards that next significant event and maybe just maybe lose sight of the way that God is graciously working in the waiting, in the waiting. Well, maybe you're in college and you just can't wait to graduate. Uh, maybe you're out of college and you just can't wait to get a quote-unquote real job. Maybe you're working your quote-unquote real job and you just can't wait to be done and retire. Maybe you're retired and you don't know what's next, <laughs> but you know you're in a season of waiting. Well, the reality is, is that many of us live, I would say, the majority of our life in between. In between these proverbial mountaintop experiences that shape us and mold us and launch us into what God has next for us. But if the majority of our life is spent in waiting, wouldn't it be great if God told us how to wait well? Well, that's a great question that you asked. I'm glad you asked that. I think it is important. And ironically, I believe that the Bible has something to say to us this morning about how to be as his people um, who want his honor and want his glory and his name to be lifted high. How do we as his people wait well? Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 1 as we wrap our hearts and our minds around this truth, that faithfulness in the waiting in this in-between time, lays a foundation for future fruitfulness. Faithfulness in the waiting, in the in-between time, lays a foundation for future fruitfulness. Let me invite you into the context of what's going on in the life of the early disciples. They found themselves in between two significant events. One, Jesus, as we studied last week, ascends to heaven. So he has his disciples near him and a cloud sort of envelops him, takes him up to the air. And in Acts chapter one, starting in verse nine, Luke records this for us. It says, when he'd said these things, the, the mission that he was giving the church, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And when he'd said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I made the point last week that this is maybe the most ridiculous question in our whole Bible. Why do you stand looking? Well, because one moment Jesus was here and now he's not. And by the way, what's with the glowing white robes, right? Okay, so he disappears, he ascends into heaven, 
And they say this, this Jesus was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go. Now, as we're going to start to study next week, we see that they live not only in between that event, but another one that was promised, the Holy Spirit. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is going to descend on the church. This is the personal presence of God that dwells in the life of every single believer, the third person of the Trinity. Now, you have to sort of enter into the story a little bit to get its significance, into the narrative that Luke invites us into. Um, Jesus, uh, back here on the timeline, lives with his disciples, ministers with his disciples for three years, died, is crucified, hangs on the cross, is buried, rises again. For 40 days, he interacts with his disciples. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He eats meals with them. He laughs with them. He weeps with them, and he casts vision about what is coming next, the mission of the church. And then he disappears. Now, you talk about um, a roller coaster of emotion, right? I mean, we read the story, and it's easy for us to just read the story and go, oh, yeah, and then Jesus disappeared and moved right along because Luke does. But these are real people, and this is a real event. And Jesus really lived among them, and he was really uh, fun to be around, and he was their leader, and then he disappears. And it's easy for us to skip by and go, okay, well, this story is going to continue, and the Holy Spirit's going to descend, and it's the personal presence of Jesus in the life of the believer, and so it's, it's all good, but they have these 10 days. where they wait and they wonder and as you're going to see they pray I love the way that one of my favorite musicians slash poets puts it as he talks about these sort of in between times in life because these times are confusing aren't they (laughs) these times are the times where you want to sort of wave the flag and go hey God, God remember me I mean, I know, you, I know you disappeared, you ascended, and that's great, but God, what do you want us to do now? What do you have for us now? And how are you going to guide us now? I love the way that Rich Mullins puts it when he says this. I don't know where you're leading me unless you've led me here where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. Isn't that true about some of those in-between times in life that we often find ourselves in? That this, this sort of attitude, this, this approach to God where we say back to God, God, I thought I had it all together. And now in this waiting, in the in-between time, I recognize I don't now and maybe I never did. I want to invite you to maybe believe this morning that some of the most significant times in your life will be in between some of the most formative times some of the mountaintop experiences, that waiting to get pregnant, that waiting to move, that waiting for the next job, that waiting for fill in the blank. And the way that we wait will determine the foundation that we have for the times 
when in our mind, God fulfills what we always longed for him to do. Well, let's take a look this morning at the way that the disciples wait. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Luke records this. He says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, Luke's note in there, a Sabbath day's journey, is sort of... um, in reference to not a scriptural mandate, but a rabbinic tradition. So, so the rabbis wanted to try to define how far can somebody walk on a Sabbath without working? They were, always, they were very concerned with protecting the law. So, so we want to know, God, how far can we walk without working? Well, they, they, they zeroed that in. They nailed it down to um, between six-tenths of a mile and three-quarters of a mile. So so, so be careful if you want to go on a run this afternoon. Have your GPS on. Don't want to go. Hey, I'm fine with the Sabbath day's run, right? Six-tenths of a mile, great. Praise the Lord. Okay. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, just a quick timeout. Um, some debate among scholars as to whether this is the same upper room that the Last Supper was celebrated with, with Jesus and his disciples. Um, some would argue that it is. Some would argue that it's not. I would argue it's insignificant, okay? It's an upper room. If they wanted us to know more, they would have told us, okay? And they were stay- where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew... Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all there. Now, this Judas is not Judas Iscariot. This Judas also went by the name of Thaddeus. So if you read back through Luke's account of the calling of the first disciples, um, he'll be referred to either as Judas or as Thaddeus, depending on the translation that you have. And all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So I want to invite you, not to just read the passage, but to enter into it. These are people who are in a significant period in between Jesus' ascension and the descension of the Holy Spirit to, to live and to dwell in the life of the believers. It's a season of deep question marks. It's a season of, I would argue, deep pain. As we're going to read in the next five verses, Judas Iscariot has taken his life. After he betrayed Jesus, he committed suicide. He took his own life. And it's easy for me to paint Judas as this um, sort of this outlier to to the group of disciples. It's easy for me to write him off because I read the whole story. I didn't walk those three years with Judas. But step back for a moment. Think of these early disciples. This was somebody who they went out on mission with. This is somebody they walked into these villages and drove out demons and healed the sick. And Judas was very much a part of that. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 10. It's somebody who they lived closely with for three years. They saw God work in him. They saw God work through him. And for us, we can read the whole story in a day. For them, it unfolded before them. And we need to enter into the pain and the hurt that it was to lose a brother. Not just for him to betray them, but then for him to betray them and take his life. 
This is a time of, in many ways, mourning. And we see, here's what they did. All with one accord, they were there devoting themselves to prayer together. So we have this persistence, this, God, we will chase after you, and we won't just do it alone, but we'll do it as a body. We'll do it together. And here's one of the things I think we learn about waiting well, is that engagement with God and his people in these periods of waiting, especially especially when one of these mountaintops is a painful event in our life, that engagement with God and with his people starts to bring about our healing. You know that that there's a reason God wired you to be communal people? That what we do here as a body of Christ is not trivial, but it's very core and central to the mission that God has for his people. That through the joyous times in life and through the difficult seasons that God brings, that we would walk with one another. And so one of the worst things we can do is to just simply walk alone, to feel like I can do this all on my own, and I can walk the road that God has for me by myself. No, you can't. And they couldn't either. See, I think Peter on his own would have been a wreck. Hey, Peter might have been a wreck with everyone else, but he was a wreck that God built And that God sustained over these 10 days as they devoted. They were ferociously engaged with God together. I mean, I don't know about you. I I long for more and more the body of South to be marked by this culture of we'll gather together and we'll seek the Lord and we'll pray. And we're going to trust that in that he does something in our midst. See, it's this prayer and worship, I would argue here, that starts to bind up their hurt. It starts to bind up their brokenness. It's why the author of Hebrews invites us, let us with confidence, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Isn't that a great way to view prayer? To draw near to the throne of grace, not condemnation, grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I love the way that the author and pastor, John Orford, puts it when he says this. Biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get to what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. And you see, it's as we wait and as we wait prayerfully and as we wait communally that God unites us. That they were, that says the disciples were together. They were together. It's one of the reasons that in the next few months you're going to see us as a church launch a Celebrate Recovery ministry. Um, John and Rachelle have been doing a lot of work to lay the groundwork for that. Mike Anderson has been instrumental in helping to pull it together as well. But we believe that God has wired us for community together, that we do that, that we do life better together than we do apart. And especially when we're in something like addiction and the throes of life, that it's almost impossible to get out if we try to do it alone. And so in order to be a beacon of hope for the world around us, we want to create more and more places, more and more platforms where people of all different walks of life and all different stages of spiritual growth and all different colors and all different, you name it, 
can find places at South where they're known, valued, and loved. It's important to us because we believe that engagement with God is a catalyst in many ways to the healing he wants to bring us in our life. I love the way that Isaiah puts it. um, He says this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 31. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall renew their strength. Did you know there's a way to wait that actually builds you up? That we look at this and this period for us, the waiting period is often flatlined in our mind. God, we're just waiting till the next mountaintop. Get us there. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. There's a way to wait that actually strengthens you and builds you. Isaiah says, they shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, Luke continues, and he says this. He says this in Acts, starting in verse 15, and we'll read through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. So it's a fairly big upper room. Brothers, the scripture, brothers, the scriptures had to be, circle that in your own Bible if you have it, they had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst into the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. So this part's rated PG-13 at least. So if your kids are with you, you can just cover their ears if you want. Judas hangs himself. As we piece together Matthew's account and Luke's account here, Judas hangs himself on a tree. Um, Most scholars think eventually that tree branch broke. Judas fell down and because of the swelling in his body, burst. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Think, Think of that. As his friends, they're still his friends, right? In many ways, processing that. They're talking about that. They're hearing the stories about that. It became known to everyone in Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So here's what Peter does. Peter stands up in front of his brothers, in front of his sisters, the, um, everybody that's there, and he says, hey, 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 I know that this period of time, this 10 days is painful, and I know it hurts, but here's what I want to do. I want to point out to you that this did not happen by accident, that it's part of a bigger picture of what God is doing in our lives and in the world. And here's what he does. He points them back to God's word and God's perspective and says, can we live in that? Instead of the hurt, instead of the pain, instead of the questions, he goes back to God's word and he invites us to be people who wait well as we trust in God's word to bring a new perspective. See, even in the fog, and I love that we drove in this morning in a fog here doesn't happen a lot in Colorado, but I, when I drove in, it was this cloud was just sort of enveloped our parking lot, that even in the fog, there's a plan of God, even when we don't see it, and even when we don't recognize it, 
And even if we wish that life looked a lot more like just one series of mountaintop experiences, joy-elated events right after another, Peter says, no, step back and see. And he quotes Psalm chapter 69, verse 25, saying, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, speaking He says, David was speaking about Judas. He's going to leave. And then he finally quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. Well, what what do we learn from that? Let me just point out a few things. One, we can have supreme confidence in the word of God. We can have supreme confidence in the word of God. Jesus is going to affirm this truth as well. He says this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to to fill them up. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, those are punctuation marks, will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. So here's what he says. In the seasons of waiting, Don't give up on hearing. In the seasons of waiting, don't give up on trusting. And in the seasons when life seems foggy and you don't recognize it, you can't see what's coming next, don't give up on God's word. He says, it will not fail you. So I wonder what piece of that we maybe need to hear this morning. Maybe that he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. Scriptures say that's a promise, you can bank on it. Even when it feels like maybe he has, you go back to his word just like Peter did to gain perspective and say, no God, I believe that you are good to me in this. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing the book of Ephesians says. Now, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly spaces. Now, he loves me, he's for me. Nothing can separate me from his love. He's going to work and he's going to weave even in the the painful things in life, everything together for my good. Can I tell you, sometimes it seems really foggy on that one. Sometimes it feels like there's a lot of waiting in between when God says that and when God delivers it. But here's what Peter points out to us. Even if it takes God well over a thousand years to be good on his promise, he will. He will. You can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. It says it had to happen. That's what Peter says. It had to be fulfilled. It would be impossible for it not to be. I love the way that Isaiah the prophet records this as well. He says this, For as the rain and the snow come down, Lord, please let the snow be over. Can it, be, can it just be rain from here on out till next December? Okay, never mind. Sorry, got my issues. I'm dealing with them. Uh, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word be. He says, so as my word descends and as it goes out, may it bring life. May my word be as it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I I love that. In fact, 
I, I paraphrase, quote that to myself every single time he walks me walk up these stairs or walk out from the back. God, your word doesn't go out void. And I stand on that today. Not on, not on even what I prepare, but God, I simply stand on your word. Would you work? Would you move? My prayer specifically this morning was for people who feel like they're in a season of waiting, God, would you breathe life through your word? May it fall and do exactly what you intend for it to be. I love that Peter declares God is never in a panic. God is never in plan B mode. God is never going, oh no, we've got to sort of recalibrate where we're going. He says, no, it had to be fulfilled. And as they pray, and as they come around the scriptures, they get this picture, they get this vision, they get this reality. God has a future for his people. We may be in a season of waiting, but God, you have great things in store for what's coming next. And sometimes in seasons of waiting, don't we just need that? Hey, like, come on, come on. There's a bigger picture of what God's doing. It's easy to get tunnel vision, at least for me, at least for me. A quick side note, as we talk about Judas, I've been wrestling this week about what what the difference is between Judas and Peter. Can I propose to you? Very little, very little. Both of them betray Jesus. Judas does it to make a little bit of money. Peter does it to preserve his life. Judas does it, and he gives them to the Roman guards and the Roman army. Peter lies to a little girl. No, I never knew him. Here's the main difference between, maybe the only difference between Judas and Peter. Peter returns to Jesus. Judas walks away. It's not about the severity of their sin that determines their destiny. It's about whether they return to Jesus or run from him. See, Peter returns. Jesus encounters him in John chapter 21. 21. You can read about this. On the the shore of Galilee, um, he eats with them. 20, John 20. No, it's John 21, sorry. He eats with them. They eat fish together. Jesus reinstates him and Peter comes back. Judas says, I'm too far gone. I've got to run. And it's too painful. I've got to take my life. See, what Judas misses is that where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more, all the more. That there's nothing so big that separates us from the love of God except our willingness to embrace his grace and his mercy. And you may be in one of those Judas slash Peter seasons this morning where you've been running pretty adamantly from God and you're at a, you're at a fork in the road today Can I encourage you, come home. Come home. His arms are open wide. Not only that, but he's already running to you. It may be the very reason you're here today. And for Peter, I mean, you think about this. His greatest ministry and his greatest mission follow his deepest failures and his biggest hurts. Yours might too. Yours might too. God's that big, and he's that good. Well, Luke continues. He says this. We're going to close here. He says, so one of the men 
who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his, Jesus' resurrection. So um, essentially, the disciples gather together, and in this period of waiting, they say, all right, we need to appoint another apostle. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, I have a theory. I have a theory that they landed on Matthias because it would have taken way too much scroll to write three names every time they needed to refer to this other man, okay? Just a theory. Take it or leave it. I would suggest you leave it. Okay, verse 24. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, there's a lot of debate as to why the disciples had to choose, had to, it says, choose another apostle to fill the role that Judas gave up. Um, there's a few theories. Let me give you just three and uh, we'll move forward. But one, the first series, it, it connects the future work of the apostles with the earthly ministry of Jesus. He had 12 apostles when he ministered on earth. It makes sense that he would have 12 continuing into the future. Uh, the second theory is that it prepared the leaders for their first phase in ministry going into Jerusalem. So um, in order to connect with a Jewish community that had 12 tribes, they said having 12 apostles is the right thing to do. The final sort of theory is that it fulfilled this prophecy that Jesus made in Luke chapter 24. He said, you are those who've stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That there needed to be 12 in order to fulfill this prophecy. Well, we know that when uh, James dies in Acts chapter 12, they don't replace him. So it wasn't that they always needed to have 12. It was simply, it was a declaration at the very beginning of the ministry of the church that there's some continuity with Jesus, that they fulfilled this prophecy. Judas wasn't replaced because he died. Judas was replaced because he deserted. So the disciples cast lots. It's actually what the search committee did to choose me. <laughs> joking, I'm joking. No, uh, in fact, this is the last time in scripture uh, that we see the church use this method of discerning God's will. Why? Well, because there's a pretty significant event coming in, in a few days, right? So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the believers, and this method of discerning God's will is no longer needed. They have the indwelling presence and work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Well, the question becomes, what do we learn from this in seasons of waiting? I think we learn this, is that reliance on God leads to his direction in our life. And while we may not cast lots anymore, I think we can be confident in the fact that God desires and longs to lead his people and that he will be faithful to do so if we are faithful to run to him. I love this method of decision-making um, 
sands the casting of lots that the disciples use. Listen to what they did. They sought the scriptures. They, they asked the question, God, what do you say about this and where should we go? And oftentimes we search the scriptures in times of uh, where we need discernment and we don't get a clear, you should go here and you should do this, but we do get principles by which to make decisions off of. Second, they used common sense. Judas's substitute had to have continuity with the rest of the disciples. He had to have been there in the ministry of Jesus. He had to have seen Jesus walk out of the grave. They prayed. They sought God's leading and his guidance. And then they trusted that he spoke. So, have a decision you got to make in your life? May I propose? Seek the scriptures. Use common sense. Pray. Do it in community with other believers. And trust that God will lead and guide. I love the way that the great early church father, St. Augustine, puts it when he says this, when it comes to making decisions, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is the beloved. See, God wants to guide you, to guide us into the future he has for us. And in many ways, what he does in the in-between as he lays a foundation for moving forward in fruitfulness, for stepping into everything that he designed us for. So may I propose to you that seasons of waiting are not just seasons of waiting and sitting back and hoping God does something next, quote unquote, but they're seasons of God preparing. They're seasons of God laying a foundation and they're seasons of God speaking and inviting and working in his body to bring about a movement of his people that makes a change in his world. See, God is the most resourceful being in the universe. He will not waste a season that we think is simply waiting. He's way more resourceful than that. He will use it to shape you and mold you and potentially heal you as you gather in community. He'll encourage you to trust his word and he'll shape and form your heart to you so that you believe and stand on it all the more and more. And then finally, eventually, like he did with the disciples, he'll say, all right, the next season is on the horizon. I'm inviting you to go. And you see, as we follow the storyline of Acts, this season of waiting sets the table for what happens at Pentecost that we'll study next week. You see, Judas has gone and he's been replaced by Matthias. Jesus has ascended. And next week, we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit fills in the life of the believer the void that he left. I pray that if you're in a season of waiting, that you will wait well that you'll wait in a way that shapes and forms a foundation for, fruit, for future fruitfulness. Let's pray. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.